Now, these all-important words that Jesus preaches in Galilee that day can easily be confusing to us. We just don't think in kingdom terms. What does it mean for the kingdom of God to be at hand? What does it mean for, for the time to be fulfilled? Is it a feeling that I find rising up within my soul? Is this kingdom an invisible force at work in this world? Is it a society I can join in with, with other men and women? Is it a, a movement that I can join myself to? But Mark's gospel helps us here and gives us much needed clarity. Mark utilizes our senses as we enter into his story about Jesus in this kingdom. And we hear in our ears the preaching of Jesus. What do we hear? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. And we have to ask, well, what do we see with our eyes? Or better yet, who do we see with our eyes? And Mark, as he tells this story, is careful to direct our gaze to one person, Jesus. At the center of every story, at the center of every saying, stands one man, Jesus. It is Jesus who calls men with sovereign authority. He goes to fishermen, he goes to tax collectors and sinners, and he says, follow me. And then they follow him. It is Jesus who casts out demons with just his word. It is Jesus who forgives sins and who heals the sick. And so this morning, we don't need to be mystified or confused about the kingdom of God. We just need to combine with what we hear in our ears and what we're seeing with our eyes as Mark tells us this story. And so we can offer another definition of the kingdom of God. We've offered several throughout this series, and we can say this. The kingdom of God is the rule and reign of King Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. And while this is an accurate answer, this is not a full answer. This definition of the kingdom of God is the rule and reign of King Jesus is just too bland. It's too indefinite to honor and make sense of the story that Mark is telling us about Jesus and his kingdom. It fails to give us the, the contour and the depths of this kingdom. And with this definition, we're only seeing in, in black and white. So in order to be faithful to Mark's story this morning, we must connect the kingdom of God with the climax of the story. And what's the climax? The cross. And when we make this connection between the kingdom and the cross, we begin to see in color. We begin to see in high definition. And at the foot of the cross, we get the clearest meaning of what it means for the kingdom of God to be present and what it means for Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of God. So we can just explain this a bit by an illustration. Uh, my first family vacation that I can remember was a trip to Colorado. And you really go to Colorado to see one thing. You go to, see the, you go to Colorado to see the Rocky Mountains. And they, they dominate the landscape of Colorado. And as you drive westwards, live in Wisconsin, so you're driving west to get to Colorado to the mountains, the mountains become increasingly clear. As you get closer to the mountains, the, the peaks... You can see the peaks in the ridges. As you draw near, you are overwhelmed with the majesty of the mountains. Their size, their soaring height, their, their breadth, their shape, their jaggedness, their, their colors. And understanding the kingdom of God is much like driving westwards towards the Rockies. The closer we get to the cross of Christ and the gospel of Mark, the more we begin to understand the nature and the definition of the kingdom. And as we draw near to the cross in the Gospel of Mark, we are overwhelmed with the accomplishments of Christ in this kingdom. Jesus says about his work at the cross, 
The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. As we draw near to this cross, we're affected with the purpose of Christ in this kingdom. Jesus says, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. As we draw near to the cross, we're astounded by the sacrifice of Christ in this kingdom. As he ushers in the new covenant blessings, Jesus cries out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As you drive westwards, the mountains become clear. As you get closer to the cross, the kingdom becomes clear. However, all family vacations come to an end, and when our family vacation was at its end, we headed home eastward. And as we drove east, the mountains got smaller and smaller, and they became less definite. And they soon became a speck, just a bump on the horizon. And finally, on our trip eastward, we met a rest stop called Last Chance, and here it said on the sign, here's the last chance that you can see the Rockies with your, with your naked eye. And as we pass by that stop, the Rockies and all their grandeur, all their greatness, the mountains that dominate the landscape of Colorado and their soaring height and their, their breadth were gone. You couldn't see them anymore. But here we have to assert the difference between the Rocky Mountains and the cross of Christ. While the Rocky Mountains can be escaped, just get in your car, drive east for two hours from them, you can't see them anymore. But the cross can never be escaped in the Gospel of Mark. There's no wayside in the story where you are beyond the reach of the cross. There is no vantage point in this story that you can ignore or put aside the cross. But the cross is a towering mountain range that casts its long shadow over all, over every story and over every saying. So therefore, our definition of the kingdom, the way we talk about the kingdom, the way we think about the kingdom, must exposit the cross of Christ. And so we can say this, just as Jesus was nailed to the cross, he was firmly fastened with his, hail, with his hands and his feet, so too our thinking about Jesus and his kingdom must be firmly fastened to the cross. We cannot think about the kingdom without the cross. And we cannot think about the cross without the kingdom. And this very issue comes into sharp focus in Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. And there's a trickiness about this passage to interpret it. Jesus blurs images and metaphors. He talks about weddings, then he talks about sowing, then he talks about winemaking, all in the brief space of five verses. Even more, there's a strangeness in these verses. Jesus talks about a bridegroom who comes, who brings immense joy to the wedding guests, but then suddenly he's swept away, he's taken away from the wedding, and, and the guests are only left to mourn and fast. Jesus speaks of a new wine that is destroyed along with its container if it's put there. He speaks of a patch that if it's sewn on to this old garment only tears it up. And this passage with its complex images and metaphors only makes sense when we bring it into direct contact with the cross. And so our aim this morning is to set our sights upon the cross through these verses, through verses 18 through 22. So we can dig into our text this morning. In chapter 2, Jesus is caught up in a series of disputes. This dispute begins when Jesus is teaching in the house and the crowd is gathered there and men are bringing a paralyzed man and they can't make it through the crowd so they go up on the roof and they let down the man. And what does Jesus say to this paralyzed man? 
Son, your sins are forgiven. And as this dispute extends and grows, when Jesus extends his ministry of forgiveness to tax collectors and sinners, and Jesus pushes the envelope in this scene, he doesn't simply forgive. He doesn't simply redeem, but he includes and celebrates the inclusion of sinful men, tax collectors, and sinners into his kingdom. Jesus gives himself away freely to these men. Verse 15 reminds us of Jesus' controversial actions. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And so as we're moving through this dispute, from the healing of the paralytic to Jesus' dining, verse 18 naturally builds off of these two past controversies. And verse 18 reads, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now on the surface, the point of contention becomes rather plain. Jesus' ministry, the way he's leading his disciples, the way he conducts himself in public, the way he spends his time stands in stark contrast to the lifestyle of the Pharisees, to the lifestyle of the disciples of John. And when we look at Jesus' ministry at a at a broad level, Jesus' feasting with Levi and the tax collectors doesn't seem to be a one-off event in his life. Rather, it seems to have been a regular pattern, a regular occurrence in his ministry. We can go to Mark chapter 11, verse 19, and, and Jesus talks about the charges that he's receiving from others. And Jesus says this, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus says that his ministry is one of eating and drinking. And the people are charging him as one who likes to party too much, someone who likes to drink too much, a drunkard and a glutton. We can also remember other stories. We can remember the calling of wee little Zacchaeus when Zacchaeus was up in the sycamore tree and, and Jesus finds him likely outside of town and says, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. And we can imagine the feasting that happened with Zacchaeus and Jesus. But we also can look at the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were a group known for their emphasis upon fasting. They'd make a public show of it and they wanted people to see their superior piety. And Jesus warns about the piety of the Pharisees throughout the Gospels. We can just go to Matthew chapter 6, verse 16, and Jesus warns, He says, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. For they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. And the Pharisees, they didn't do this just once a year, but they did it twice a week. Luke chapter 18 verse 12 records the the boast of a hypothetical Pharisee. The text says, I fast twice a week and I, I give tithes of all that I get. So the difference seems plain to all who witness Jesus' ministry. And the question begins to make sense to us. Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now, we don't know what was in the heart of these questioners as they asked Jesus this question. Perhaps they were just inquisitive about the ministry of Jesus. Jesus is feasting, others are fasting. This doesn't make sense. 
But in the context of chapters 2 and 3, this growing dispute that leads towards the ultimate plotting and planning of Jesus' death in chapter 3, there may be a darker side to the, the questions here. There may be darker reasoning going on. So putting their questions in light of the bigger context of chapters 2 and 3, we could, we could say something like this, what they were thinking. Here is this Jesus a man who thinks he can forgive sin, something that God can only do, something that can only be mediated through the temple cult. Here is this Jesus who eagerly accepts and fellowships with sinners. Here is this Jesus, a man who calls Levi, a tax collector, to be one of his own disciples. And all the more, this Jesus doesn't fast. He isn't serious like the Pharisees who fast twice a week. He doesn't lead like John the Baptist did who, who had a people out in the wilderness confessing their, their sins. And the problem with Jesus isn't just that he feasts and dines and drinks, but it seems that he doesn't really care about sin at all. Perhaps he doesn't care about the law. Perhaps he doesn't care about the justice and righteousness of God. Perhaps this Jesus is just a libertine casually neglecting the, the weighty matter of sin. For this man thinks he can forgive sins. He th- thinks he can dine with sinners. And then he doesn't even mourn over sin like the rest of the religions. So we have to note this question of verse 18 is not simply a lifestyle question. Jesus feasts while the Pharisees and the disciples of John prefer to fast, nor is it a matter of inner and outer religion. The Pharisees are just hypocrites while Jesus prefers inner religion, but Verse 18 points us to a deeply theological question. It brings us near to the heart of the gospel. It brings us near to the very character of God. I think Jesus recognizes this, and so he presses into their question like he does so many times. And he answers a question with a question. Verse 19. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, They cannot fast. And it's interesting here that Jesus responds to criticism about his feasting and lack of fasting by talking about a party, perhaps the greatest party in the ancient world, a wedding celebration. And the logic that Jesus employs here is fairly straightforward. A wedding calls for a certain type of behavior and demeanor and action. A wedding calls for feasting. It calls for celebration It calls for laughter. It calls for happiness. And we get this. When we go to a wedding, we dress in a certain way and we expect certain behaviors. When we go to a wedding, we expect to eat cake and good food. We expect to laugh and be happy. We expect to to see the joy of a new marriage before our eyes. We expect dancing. But at the same time, there are behaviors that are not fitting for a wedding. It's not fitting for all the music in a wedding to be played in the, in the minor key. It's not fitting for those in the audience to weep bitter tears at a wedding. It's inappropriate for the bride to wear black. And all the more, it just wouldn't make sense to ask the guests of the wedding to, to fast during the banquet when cake and good food should be served. And what Jesus is doing here is he's arguing that his feasting is fitting for the time. And that, his, and that the behavior of the Pharisees and the disciples of John is out of place, just like a mourner would be out of place at a wedding party. But we have to ask, how does this solve our theological problem? The Pharisees and the disciples of John fast. They are dressed up in funeral garb because they take sin seriously. 
They're concerned with purity and the law of God. They're mourning and showing long face because they see Israel yet experiencing the covenant curses of God. They're not blind to the illness and sicknesses plaguing Israel. They're not blind to the fact that the Romans yet occupy them. Then we see Jesus, and he's dressed up for a wedding. He feasts, he parties. And it seems that Jesus' behavior here only heightens the theological problem. Does Jesus really care about this issue of sin? And we have to tread carefully here because Jesus does care about sin. He cares infinitely more about sin than the scribes or the disciples of John. This is the very reason Jesus came as a savior and mediator of mankind to, to deal with sin, to take sin seriously. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. You shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. So we can say this. Jesus' feasting doesn't reveal carelessness about sin. Rather, it reveals an appreciation and understanding of his own messianic mission and the presence of his kingdom. We have to dig deeper into Jesus' words to understand what's going on. Jesus says, As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Jesus is not simply talking about a wedding party here in verse 19, but he's revealing his very identity, his very mission as the Son of God, as the, the Christ. So when you go back to the Old Testament, read the prophets. The Old Testament reveals that Israel has a distinct relationship with their God, the Lord, Yahweh. Israel is the bride, and Yahweh, their God, is the husband, or we could say the, the bridegroom. Isaiah chapter 54, verse 5 says this, For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name. Or we can go to the book of Hosea, chapter 2, verses 19 through 20. The Lord says here, And I, the Lord, will betroth you to me forever. Wedding language. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Feasting and dining is appropriate. In fact, Jesus' disciples cannot fast because the great hope of Israel has arrived. Yahweh has returned to his people. The bridegroom himself of Isaiah chapter 54 and Hosea chapter 2 has come. Jesus, the divine spouse, has appeared and the wedding banquet has begun. The wine bottles have been opened up and the food is available and free. The cake is being served. And Jesus feasts and he dines. And as he is doing this, he is symbolically revealing the good news of the gospel, that the kingdom is at hand and that it can be participated in by sinners. And here we get a clear picture of what Jesus understands about sin. Jesus can feast, his disciples can party, not because he's careless about sin or because he doesn't think sin is a weighty matter, but because he knows the day of salvation has arrived. He knows that the time of redemption has come and the the blessings of the kingdom are spilling out all over sinners. He knows that he is the divine spouse, that he is the the person of Isaiah 54 and Hosea chapter 2 and that his coming will bring eternal peace to his people. His coming will bring the long-awaited forgiveness of sins. We need to dive more into Isaiah chapter 54 this morning. 
And Isaiah is singing to a people who need hope about the work of the coming bridegroom. And Isaiah is speaking prophetically about the Lord Jesus. And carefully note the work of Jesus on behalf of his people. What his coming means for the people of God. Isaiah sings. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit. Like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you. But with great compassion I will gather you in. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. The difference between Jesus' disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees in John is this. Jesus' disciples tasted the present blessings of the kingdom in Jesus Christ. Jesus' powerful preaching had burrowed into their hearts. They did not only hear it, but they rejoiced in it. When Jesus preached the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, it created faith and belief in their hearts. They tasted the forgiveness of sins, and they knew the blessed presence of the divine spouse. Just think, they had Jesus in their presence. How could they not feast? How could they not dine? How could they not be filled with joy? While the disciples of John and the Pharisees were blind to the news of the kingdom, they were like mourners at a wedding. They were out of place. Even more, they were suspicious of the bridegroom. They mourned, they fasted, they dressed up in funeral guard because they refused to taste the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the divine spouse, but they would not partake. And as we press into Jesus' words, it becomes clear that the kingdom of God and the state of religion in Israel is simply not compatible. Just as funerals and weddings don't mix, just as no one sews a new patch onto old clothes, just as no one puts fresh wine into brittle old containers, in the same way, Jesus is incompatible with this religion of the old. And Mark is going to trace this out throughout his gospel, ultimately with the destruction of the temple. But when we look closely at Jesus' words this morning, there are some oddities that we must notice. They seem strange. Look with me at verses 19 through 22. Jesus goes on to speak. He says, The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. In verse 18, Jesus paints this this beautiful picture of the kingdom of God. And we can just sense the blessings of it. The divine spouse has come. Blessings are being spilled out. Forgiveness, love, peace. But here in verses 19 through 22, these, these blessings are interrupted by three disturbing words. 
The bridegroom is suddenly taken away from the banquet and the wedding guests are are left there only to mourn and fast. Jesus talks about a garment that if if it is patched with with this unshrunken cloth, it will be torn up. Jesus talks about this new wine. But if this wine is put in the old container, itself will be destroyed and so will the container as well. And so it's clear, verses 19 through 22 are, are, are judging the Pharisees. They reveal their inadequacies. They're not fit for this kingdom. They're out of place. But verses 19 through 22 also reveal the mission of the Lord Jesus. And we can ask, how will Jesus rescue his people from their sins? How will all the blessings of Isaiah chapter 54 come near to God's people? We've talked about this gathering of God's people this compassion, this love, this covenant of peace, how will all of these things come near to God's people? And Jesus' strange and disturbing sayings in verses 19 through 22 bring us into direct contact with the cross. The blessings of the kingdom flow wide and free because the Lord Jesus will make his way to the cross. Jesus can freely forgive sinners because he is the one who will bear up the sins of his people once and for all upon the cross. And the blessings of the kingdom, everything in Isaiah chapter 54, hinges directly on what happens at the cross. And these three sayings are, are hints towards the cross. So we can say this, we can reason this way. All the blessings of the divine spouse, which we read in Isaiah chapter 54, the gathering up of the deserted and forlorn bride, the outpouring of love and compassion and peace, All of these good things are mediated to us through Isaiah chapter 53. One cannot have Isaiah chapter 54, the joy of it, without experiencing Isaiah chapter 53. And what's 53 about? It's about the suffering servant. Or we can say this a different way. One cannot have the joy of the wedding banquet without experiencing the loss of the bridegroom. This seems paradoxical. Or we can say this again. One cannot experience the blessings of the kingdom without the terror of the cross. Blessings come through the cross. And the good news which we will see revealed in the Gospel of Mark that becomes clear as we move towards the mountain range is that Jesus is the bridegroom that was taken away. Ultimately, he is the patch that is sewn onto the old garment that will, will tear it up. Ultimately, he is the new wine that is going to be placed in the old container and the container will be destroyed, and, and so will Jesus. Isaiah chapter 53 helps us make sense of Jesus' odd words. How do the blessings of chapter 54 come? How do the forgiveness of sins draw near to God's people? Well, Isaiah 53 tells us what the servant will do. The servant has done this. He was despised and rejected by men. He bore our griefs, and he carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The Lord laid upon him our iniquity. He was taken away, just like a bridegroom was taken away from a banquet and cut off from the land of the living. And Jesus in these sayings points us to the cross and from this perspective we we gain good news for our souls. The the bridegroom has done it. He has gone to the cross. He was was taken away. He himself was destroyed so that his spouse, the church, we who believe might be healed and restored. 
that we would experience the blessings of the new covenant in fullness, that we would have this peace and loving kindness, that we would be gathered in. So the question is this morning is, what do we do with this text? More importantly, what do we do with this Jesus revealed in this text? And as we reflect upon this, this passage, it's, it's, there's paradoxes in it. The paradoxes are evident. There is this bridegroom. His presence brings joy, but this bridegroom will also bring sadness when he is taken away. And this ministry of Jesus also requires two responses from us. Feasting and fasting. And here we encounter an applicational paradox. We are to feast because the bridegroom has come and his coming has ushered in the blessings of the new covenant. We've tasted his salvation, the forgiveness of sins, and so we feast, just like the sinners and tax collectors did with Jesus. But Jesus also paradoxically calls us to fast. Note verse 20. We can't skip over this verse. Jesus says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in that day. So how are we to make sense of this? How are we to feast and fast? What are we to do with this paradox? Well, Martin Luther is helpful here at this point. Martin Luther is always helpful. He always preaches the gospel very clearly and plainly. And Luther tells a story in his book on the freedom of the Christian about a wedding about a bride and a groom. And note carefully how he explains the gospel here. Luther says, Here, this rich, upstanding bridegroom, Christ, marries this poor, disloyal little prostitute. He redeems her from all her evil and adorns her with all his goodness. For now it is impossible for her sins to destroy her because they have been laid upon Christ and devoured by him. In Christ, her bridegroom, she has righteousness, which she can enjoy as her very own property. And with confidence, she can set this righteousness that she has from Christ over against all her sins and in opposition to death and hell and can say, sure, I have sinned, but my Christ in whom I trust has not sinned. All that is his is mine, and all that is mine is his. beautiful story by Luther, and it makes sense of the gospel. We have to ask, well, Luther, how does this make sense of this paradox? Why are we to feast? How can we feast this morning? And as Christians this morning, as those who have tasted the kingdom, we can feast because the rich and upstanding bridegroom has married us. And Luther does not mince words. In sin, we are just disloyal prostitutes. And we can rejoice and be merry because, that, because Christ, because of who Christ is and what he has done, belongs rightfully to us through this marriage. In this marriage covenant, in this marriage bond, we possess Christ's very righteousness, his good deeds, his life, his spirit. But what also happens in a marriage? All that is his is mine, and all that is mine is his. In this marriage, not only do we possess Christ, but Christ possesses the sinner. And in this possession, he takes our sorrows and our defilement. He bears our sins on the tree. And so this morning, we can boast. In fact, I can command you to to boast and to celebrate, to, to feast. Why? 
because the bridegroom has come. All that is his is mine, and all that is mine is his. We can boast as the prostitute does. Sure, I have sinned, but my Christ in whom I trust has not sinned. We're completely righteous in Christ, and Christ has taken away our robes of unrighteousness. But Jesus also says there's a time for fasting. When the bridegroom is taken away, then they will fast. Jesus understands here that his death would bring great pain, bereavement to his disciples. Even more, Jesus understood the nature of the kingdom and how it would work itself out in these men's lives. Those who follow Jesus will also live cruciform lives. Just as Jesus goes to the cross, so these men too will have to pick up their crosses and follow him. So we need to make some careful distinctions this morning. Jesus calls us to fast, but we don't fast like the Pharisees or like the disciples of John. Why? Well, they fasted outside the kingdom. They fasted without knowing the forgiveness of sins. They fasted without tasting the joy of the bridegroom. But Jesus calls us to fast, and he calls us to fast as the bride of Christ. And here we can return to to Luther's story, and he, he helps us. The bride can boast in this marriage. Though she is poor and disloyal, this marriage changes her. All that is his is mine, and all that is mine is his. And we have to assert, as the bride of Christ, we receive not just the forgiveness of sins, we receive not just new hearts, we receive not just the blessed spirit in Christ's very righteousness, but we also receive the cross of Christ. In this marriage, we get everything of Christ, including the cross. And so we can ask, what does it mean to be a people who fast as the bride of Christ? Well, it doesn't necessarily mean literally we're a people who deprive ourselves of food, but there is time for fasting. But I think this fasting stands for something more. It means that we are a people who lead lives marked by the cross. Jesus commands later in the Gospel of Mark, the call of discipleship is this, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. In this marriage we boast, all that is his is mine, and all that is mine is his. In this marriage with Christ, we receive the cross. And this means we live a life of fasting, a life of of self-denial. We cast aside the things of the world to pursue Christ. And Jesus warns, he says, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. And in this marriage with Christ, we receive this, this hard way that leads to life. And Jesus predicts later in the Gospel of Mark, he tells his disciples, be on your guard for they will deliver you over to councils And you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. Married to Christ, you get the very afflictions of Christ as well. We receive the cross. You just look at the lives of Jesus' disciples. So many of them died themselves. So in light of this cross, we both fast and we feast. All that is his is ours, and all that is ours is his. 
And because of the cross, we can rejoice. We actually can feast. The bridegroom was taken away. He bore our sins in his own body on the tree. He has clothed us with his righteousness. We taste the blessings of the new covenant, the forgiveness of sins, the outpouring of the Spirit, the hope of resurrection. But at the same time, we're also called to fast. Because all that is Christ is ours in this marriage. Christ has placed into our hands the blessed instrument of the cross. And we are to imitate Christ's life. We are to take the narrow way that is hard. We are to die daily to ourselves. And Jesus calls us to be a people who paradoxically feast and fast. This is what it means to be in the kingdom in the present age. We feast and we fast. And we will do this until the Lord Jesus Christ returns when the bridegroom comes to to find his bride. And then there will be no more fasting, but just feasting. And Jesus calls us this morning into his kingdom of feasting and fasting, saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we do rejoice in your word this morning. We need it. We need to hear again of the saving acts of Christ Jesus, that he is the bridegroom that was taken away. We need to hear the gospel as is explained by Luther. And Father, we ask that this word of the gospel would, would burrow down into our hearts and that we would be a people who partake in this kingdom in the present age. That we would be a people characterized both by feasting as we enjoy the blessings of the new covenant and a people who fast as we imitate our Lord Jesus Christ because we have taken the cross. So Father, would you bless these words to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.